One of the Healthcare Council of Chicago's core beliefs is that all Chicagoans have a unique and indispensable role in advancing the economic vitality and the health and well-being of our local communities. And this, of course, absolutely applies to business communities as well. Chicago has an incredibly robust and vibrant business community, from locally owned and operated restaurants, bars, and dry cleaners to multinational brands like McDonald's, Salesforce, and Walgreens, Chicago has a thriving business community that has cultivated opportunities for an immeasurable number of people. Local and national headlines often paint a very different picture of Chicago. And unfortunately, the very real and devastating effects of the COVID-19 pandemic have left some of our neighbors with less hope and resources than before. With Chicago's extremely segregated history, today there is still a very real disconnect between different parts of the city. So as employees report to their respective businesses, they often bring with them their real life problems. However, while oftentimes employers dutifully pay their taxes, many circumvent any real effort to get more deeply involved in the core systemic or day-to-day -day issues facing their employees and their communities. Several corporations and influential business leaders have had a long-standing history of philanthropic support to local causes, and the rise of corporate social responsibility or CSR activities have continued to support community investment education, and safety in Chicago. Most of the time, these efforts have lacked coordination with other businesses to do the same. And for the businesses that have remained on the sidelines, well, oftentimes they don't know where to start. And though there have been efforts to convene and organize the business community for a collective impact in addressing certain challenges in Chicago, there has never been a sustainable solution for the collective good. In early 2020, a group of local business leaders and other strategic partners formed the Corporate Coalition of Chicago. The Corporate Coalition's efforts were challenged by the economic and social volatility of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it has continued to recruit dozens of corporate members from across the city, some of whom are worldwide household brand names. And their efforts to strengthen the bonds between the civic and the commercial are beginning to have a real impact where the city faces unprecedented challenges. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillip. The presenting sponsor for the HC3 Podcast is Rosecrans. Rosecrans is a private, nonprofit organization and nationally recognized leader in treating mental health and substance use disorders for children, teens, young adults, adults, and families. With over 60 locations in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, their physician-led team has developed an innovative, multidisciplinary, outcomes-informed approach. Rosecrans's comprehensive continuum of care includes individual, group and family therapy, residential care for teens and adults with on-site detox services, intensive outpatient care and continuing care, family support and education, virtual outpatient services, alumni programming and parent support groups, and prevention and early intervention education for students and communities. Since 1916, their unmatched legacy as a proven behavioral health care leader is a source of hope and strength to those they serve. Rosecrans served more than 50,000 people last year. So, Megan, tell us a bit about the Corporate Coalition of Chicago and how you came across them. 
Well, the Corporate Coalition is a collective of corporate leaders that are focused on rethinking how we do business here in Chicago. Through their unique approach, which is business unusual, they are moving beyond philanthropy, rethinking the way that business invests and operates and sharing and activating ideas to catalyze systemic change. The Corporate Coalition is a group of companies that is committed to using their assets and capabilities and employee enthusiasm to address economic and racial inequities in the Chicago region. The coalition members are looking at what they do in their businesses, how they work, how they hire, how they procure, how they invest on a day in and day out basis and asking how can we do that in a way that creates a more prosperous, more inclusive region beyond philanthropy, which everyone is involved in and rightly so, and beyond the responsibility we all have to help the public and nonprofit sectors be successful. Coalition members are saying, what is it in the way that we do our day jobs that can and, and frankly must change to create prosperity that we all hope is reflected in our region? The coalition is focused not just on what we can do, but what we can do together. Because presumably there are things where individual corporate action is good, but collective corporate action is even better. And so the coalition focuses primarily on those areas where joint action has the potential to have greater impact than companies working alone. We do things in several broad categories. First and most important where we started is we have initiatives, initiatives where companies working together can have a greater impact than working alone initiatives such as how can we collectively develop a way to get equity capital into disinvested communities and local developers of color who are trying to create new physical infrastructure and new jobs in communities. Turns out that there has been a lot of work and good work and and important work on debt capital. Um, But if you don't have equity, good luck getting that debt capital, good luck getting site control, good luck doing it's the same thing as a homeowner who doesn't have equity, can't get the loan for a house. Same thing goes with developers. So collectively, how can we get equity capital? Collectively, how can we hire people with a criminal record? Roughly one third of all working age adults in this country have some sort of criminal record, many of which will be barriers to employment. Roughly 70 million adults in this country, that record includes a felony. And felonies are often huge barriers to employment. But if we want to grow this economy, we have to include the residents of our economy into it as opposed to exclude it. So how can we help companies think about how do I screen in potential employees rather than screen out potential employees? And felonies are a range of felonies. Everything from the person coming out of the prison system to someone who had a DUI 15 years ago, that's still a felony on a record and that still gets in the way of employment. If we want to grow the economy, if companies want to access the employees they need to run their businesses, we have to find a way to include more of our neighbors in the economy. We have an initiative where companies provide technical supports and business opportunities to local developers and businesses in those developments, both because those developers often don't have the capacity that larger developers have to do long-term strategic planning or to do the communications that's needed, but also to create the human connections that we need between people who live in different parts of our city and never meet each other. So that's the first group of activities. Those are the initiatives that the coalition runs. The second is 
I tend to call innovative practice sharing rather than best practice sharing, because I think in this area of how do we rethink our business operations and how we rethink business as usual, I think that there is, um, we're still developing the best practices. So where are their innovative practices? And we do that through our meetings. We do that through an annual workforce showcase we put on. We do that through a number of, of media. And then thirdly, we started earlier this year a more public conversation around challenging business as usual. And as we like to put it, how do you create business unusual? So how do you look at your hiring process and say, this is inadvertently excluding certain populations. How do I make that include certain populations? How do I look at my investment criteria and say, this is inadvertently not going to invest in certain neighborhoods. How can I get those criteria to invest in certain neighborhoods? We've appointed co-chairs who are helping us get the message out. We've published op-eds. And this is an increasing part of our work because we think it's important that Chicago has a history of its business community being very proud of its civic uh, life and its civic engagement. We think we can build on that and create a city where challenging business processes is part of the culture of doing business in Chicago. And so we want to raise up those who are doing that already, highlight the new practices, and then bring others into the fold. I want to touch on all of those. Um, but before I do, what was the catalyst for the coalition coming together? And I, you know, one of the things I've, I've organized a bunch of coalitions and alliances over the course of my career. And one of the very first things I've kind of learned to ask myself or whoever I'm working with is, oh, okay, who else is doing this or who else thinks they're doing this? And are they doing it well? And how can we be different or unique in accomplishing that objective? So talk me through the process, the catalyst for putting this together. And as you thought about those unique contributions, how did you land on these areas? So the catalyst is very specifically a meeting that leaders from J.P. Morgan Chase and AT&T called back in February of 2019. Oh, so this was pre-pandemic. This was pre-pandemic. No one knew who George Floyd was. No one could spell COVID. But business <laughs> leaders called together other business leaders and said, what can we do as the business community to address gun violence in Chicago? And the conversations were roughly, we have to make sure that the public sector, which includes police and the courts, are successful. And many of us in the business community were supporting that. We have to make sure we are supporting community organizations that are doing the hard work of street outreach, of, of disruption, of community, creating community, of supporting those who are at high risk of being the perpetrators or victims of gun violence through nonprofits. Many companies are doing that. But if we take a step back and ask, what are the root causes of gun violence? Almost everyone in the room agreed that it is economic opportunity or the lack of economic opportunity for certain populations. And then the natural next thought step is, well, we are the business community. What other community has a bigger impact on economic opportunity than us? And the answer is no one. If you look at jobs, nine out of 10 jobs, 89% of the jobs in the Chicago region are private sector jobs. If you look at investment in capital, the private sector provides more than 10 times the investment capital than the, the public sector. If it is about economic opportunity long-term, the business community has both an opportunity and I would say responsibility to say, how are we capturing the opportunity and making sure that we are investing in the long-term solutions, not just to gun violence, but to 
a thriving region, to a growing region, to a prosperous region that we would all be excited to call Chicago. And the corporations that you've invited to participate are the, the ones that you work with in the context of the coalition. They're obviously making an investment in the work, right? Probably not just in the work to underwrite the activities of, of you and your colleagues, but certainly in supporting certain initiatives. And if an organization commits to a different kind of hiring practice or a different process, that term you used was business unusual, right? There's a cost they bear for those things. How do organizations think about that, that adage of return on investment, right? Like, We'd all love to believe that, that organizations are doing these things altruistically, and I'm sure there's an element of that, but what is the financial rationale for a corporation making these kinds of investments? So that's a critical question. I think every company is in a different place and every company thinks about it differently. Certainly companies that are struggling to find employees, and there are many companies in many sectors that are struggling to find employees, investing in ways to change your internal processes so you can hire people with a record or you can hire people with a two-year degree instead of a four-year degree or you find a way to screen in populations of veterans or others who had been screened out before because it was convenient. That has an immediate return because you can't run your business if you can't find the people. So in some cases, that return is direct and immediate and clear. In other cases, if we think about investing equity capital, what we're really saying to companies is we have to think about risk return profiles in a different way. If all we are looking for is the most immediate, short-term, highest financial return, we are going to keep investing in the same communities that we have been investing in in the past. If we want to take a longer-term view, that we want to grow the economy, that we want to have more communities that have the more traditional risk return profiles that we would like to see, then we can invest today and work together today to create the condition so there is a growing economy and there are more places to invest in the future. So it depends on the business, it depends on their challenges, and it depends on the timeline. Some things are short-term, but I will say that on the long-term, everyone benefits from a growing, safer, more prosperous economy. And why, why 2019? Why haven't corporations in this city, I, I mean, 2019 did not present this city with a completely new slate of challenges, right? A lot of the challenges we have have existed for decades. What is special about 2019 and, and egalitarian corporations kind of waking up one day and saying, hey, we really want to get involved and we have a role to play here. And I'm not beating them up for having not done it sooner, but I am fascinated at the notion that, you know, Chicago has always been a big business city. And again, we've had these we've had social and economic challenges throughout the region for decades. Why did it take us so long to get organized around these principles? I'm not sure there is a thing that said 2019. I think several things happened that brought the group together. Number one is other large cities over the past several decades have made more progress in the topic of gun violence than Chicago has. And so that is in the mix and that is on the mind of leaders across the region, whether they're corporate or philanthropic or community or public leaders. So that certainly was in the mix. And Chicago is blessed with a business community that cares, that has this history. People are 
proud of. People like to say you don't stand out in Chicago by being a business leader who is civically involved. You stand out by not being involved. And that's not the way you want to stand out. So we have an ongoing sense of we have to do more. We had been doing some more things around gun violence, but the sense we have to do more and different, a sense of business leaders who are willing to say, what else do we need to do? An economy that could be growing faster. And so two leaders say, we're going to pull together businesses and ask ourselves what we can do. And it led to where we are today, which is five different initiatives and 36 member companies and much more activity than I think we could have guessed would happen. I don't think we would have guessed that George Floyd would have been murdered. Certainly George Floyd's murder got companies to stop and ask, okay, what do we need to do differently? As many would say, we're doing philanthropy, but what can we do besides philanthropy? Certainly COVID made everyone ask, how am I caring for my employees? And that's part of the work is caring for employees who have different needs from different regions. So I'm not sure there was a thing that happened in 2019. I think it is part of the history of the business leadership of Chicago to say, how can we play a role? What role do we need to play in addressing issues? And there were issues and there were leaders who said, let's see what we can do. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's funny how often we all kind of look to the summer of 2020 and COVID is going on and this terrible thing happens in Minneapolis. And, and we see that as this kind of social inflection point. But as you were talking, Brian, it kind of dawned on me that in 2018, 2019, we, we had a couple of really bad years in this city with respect to gun violence. And, and there were a couple, and, and I can't remember them off the top of my head, which you know, shame on me, but there were a couple quite jarring uh, violent events that took place. And I, I remember during that time. And Megan, you probably remember this too. We had members, we had clients, we had a lot of people reaching out to us and saying, oh my God, we are like, we are sick of sitting on the sidelines. Like we know there's something we can do, but we have no idea how to act. Like we're a marketing firm or we're a law firm. Like we don't know how to activate because you know, we're really good at filing briefs or doing research or whatever. But what do we know about the South side of the city or the far North side of the city or whatever? And it was this kind of this desire to jump in and be active. And part of me wonders if there's just been this growing pressure. If there had been this growing pressure for the years up to that, and it was like, finally, these big headline things happen and everybody just says, oh my God, mayor's not getting this done. The city council's not getting this done. The governor's are going to get like, we're throwing money at this or, or pursuing police reform. Nothing is getting better. The headlines are getting worse. I want to do something. I want to activate. And, and I wonder if that's, there was just pressure cooker that consummated around that time. Like, how do you react to that? Well, I think there are several really interesting things in, in what you said. Number one is, I do think that there is a growing sense of people. And at my age, I will say younger people who feel they want to be involved. We need, if we're going to spend X percent of my waking hours at work, I want that to have some social relevance. I want that to have something I don't have to hide. I want to be proud of what I'm doing. I want to say the world is better because I happen to go to work today. I, I think that is a general feeling. Yeah. And I think that that's one thing that gives me great optimism. I think that the way you phrase the question is spot on. People want to be part of a solution, but they don't know how, they don't see it, they don't know their role. And part of that is reflected in the polarization of everything in our society, not just economic polarization, but 
geographic polarization and broad social polarization. So people from the northern suburbs couldn't tell you where Auburn Gresham is and are shocked to know that nine miles away from where they live, there is a Parkland shooting, the equivalent of a Parkland shooting, if you add up the amount of violence every couple of months. But that's just not part of people's experience. And so part of what the corporate coalition, in fact, is trying to do, and we can't do it alone, this is something I think everyone needs to do, is to say, how do we create human connections across different parts of our region that, that decreasingly mix with one another? I don't know if you're a sports fan or not. I, I dabble. You dabble. So I'm, I have, a, I'm a fair weather sports fan. When the, when, the, when the Cubs are in the playoffs of the World Series, I'm all in, baby. But regular season, I'll go to a game, but that's about it. I'm a big ice hockey fan. And the cool thing about my former job is I got invited to some of the boxes at the United Center. And I used to love that because you could go in with uh, the high flying folks in the back there and have your private hot dogs and chicken tenders and whatever they were serving. But then you could go out in the seats and be part of the crowd and scream and yell and boo at the refs and do whatever you wanted to do at, at the United Center. This is back when Chicago had a hockey team. Um, <laughs> you got to wear you got to wear both hats. Exactly. You got to be bougie in one hand and totally irreverent. Exactly. Uh, on the other. I was invited to a box for a Bears game a couple of years ago. Have you ever been to a box at a Bears game? No, but uh, I know we got Roger Quick. I think has a perpetual box okay. and like makes this a thing where, it, but I've never gotten an invitation. Think so about, Roger, if you're listening to this, I'm still seething about it. Think about an infinite plexiglass habit trail. You are sealed <laughs> in, in front and to your sides by plexiglass. There, you can't go out to the seats and be part of the crowd. There are little windows at the top. If you want to hear the crowd, you can open, but it's like, it's the biggest flat screen high res TV you've ever seen because you're looking through the very clear plexiglass to the field, but you are, you are sealed in there except for the door behind you. It, to me, this was just such a manifestation of the polarization this, of, of our society. And the interesting social science research is that it is the social capital, the, the weak, generally weak connections between power structures between those who don't have and those who do have, between the influencers and the non-influencers, between the grassroots and the grass tops. It's the number of those connections that predict whether people and communities can work their way out of poverty. It's not necessarily the social connection within a community, which is important, but it's much more the connections between communities that define whether communities can, in fact, help support themselves. I love the analog, love the analog. And just, it does typify, I think, how we have partitioned and stratified society and social constructs, you know, in all urban markets or for the entire post-industrial period. You know, one of the things that, that I think is endemic in what you just said is this notion that businesses do not, so, so you, you said, I just want to go back to something you said a second ago and then segue into this. One of the things you, you kind of pointed out is, is an inflection point, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is there is a different generation of workers who treat, uh, uh, who treat their potential to participate in a socially responsible way differently 
than preceding generations. That's not a knock on preceding generations. I don't know exactly what informs that or why that is, but it's true. It's true. I, I think workers, you know, particularly under the age of 30, 35, they want to go to bed every day knowing they've done something to have an impact on the world. And I'm with you. That fills me with a tremendous amount of optimism because I think that can really change the game over time. I think what's happening right now with corporations who are really starting to lean in is they are they are setting that stage. They are creating an environment under which this new generation can really op- be, be optimal and thrive. The other thing I wanted to say was that I think historically in most markets, businesses have not seen themselves as part of some symbiotic ecosystem that what happens five to 10 miles north, five to 10 miles to the south or west or whatever the case may be, really doesn't have any bearing on how I load my trucks, how I process accounts receivable, how I I get deals done, how I acquire companies, whatever the case may be. But there is now this economic calculus, this rationale starting to enter in that where I do business, how I conduct and engage with my community, I can start to, to assign dollars and cents to that. I can think about retention, turnover, brand equity, my tax base and what I'm paying into, you know, a, a, a government entity who is then reallocating those dollars to support infrastructure in a community. And I think that that awakening is so important um, because in a capitalistic society, right, everything is kind of about incentives. Are you going to jump in? Yeah, you I got, think you got um, close to your mic. I have many thoughts to piggyback on that. I think it's been interesting to watch over the past 10 to 20 years that more globally, there's been a movement in business towards ESG, environmental, social and governance. And I think that that dovetails into what this corporate responsibility looks like and what is the business case for us to make that makes it important to think about all these factors, where you are staffing and sourcing and what that looks like in community. And I also think that the brand equity piece of what's important to people as consumers, I mean, I think of the example of certified organic or other types of approvals that make us as consumers more conscious. And how do businesses be more conscious of the communities that they are serving, your products are going into the world. Where is it going? Who is buying it? And who is it for? And how are you engaging in those communities, not just in, you know, pushing it out, but how does it come back to you? And I think that there's more of a circular approach as we're going forward. A guy named Vivek Ramaswamy wrote a book. Um, I actually disagree with almost everything he wrote, but he had a really interesting (laughs) insight that we give liability protection to corporations. That's a quid. There should be some quo for that quid. Or is it a quid for a quo? I don't know which one, right? There, there should be an exchange. Society, we, through our government, which is us in collective action, have said we're going to protect the individuals in that corporation from, from liability because why? Well, the reason we would do that is because we want that entity to provide something positive for us. Why else would you protect it? I would say that that thing we're looking for is that on net, that entity is doing something positive for the world. And to me, that's kind of the core of whether people call it stakeholder capitalism or whether it's ESG fully embedded into a company. Like That's why that is not only the right thing, the cool thing is it begins to tap people's inner desire to do things that are are meaningful. 
I think it is a shift. I think you asked earlier what was going on in 2019. The other thing that was going on in 2019 is the business roundtable was redefining the role of the corporation back to what it was about two, two to three generations ago. So these things aren't completely independent. And I think that one of the cool things is that if we think about companies as entities that are not purely to return financial returns, but to return to the broader community, it matches what people want to do. It matches the roles companies used to play. And interestingly, it matches very well Milton Friedman's view, if you read him carefully about the role of the corporation, the role of the corporation is to turn a profit so long as it does that in a way that A, is legal, and B, supports the norms of society. And as our norms are changing, then the way companies do that is going to have to change if you believe in Milton Friedman's view of the way the world should work. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which is, which is funny, you could go down a whole rabbit hole of wokeism, anti-wokeism, and how that interplays. Well, that's why I didn't mention the name politics. of his book. I don't want to go to, through that, but I think it's just a really exciting way to think about the role, the role of business. And it just, it makes sense. To your point, Megan, it resonates with people. And we do need to be careful in that financial return is a really important part of what companies do. The part of the brilliance of capitalism is the efficient use of capital. It's also the brilliance of capitalism is to tap the creativity of the population. And if we are not tapping the broad population, if through the financial mechanisms, we are increasingly excluding people, that won't work for capitalism either. And capitalism will lose the legitimacy it has. So it is to the long-term interest of capitalism to make sure that we're including as many people as possible. So in the long term, to me, these things completely come together. It's the shorter term where you're saying, I can make a short-term profit here that takes leadership to say, no, I'm going to think the long-term. I'm going to play a long game. Yeah. And I think we've, we've either been bereft of structures that allow those leaders to conduct themselves in that way and or we have been bereft of leaders that just are naturally wired um, to be that way and not calling out anybody in specific. Brian, talk a little bit about it. There's, I've, I've observed over the last several months that there seems to be a lot of hand-wringing right now that as, as the city continues to face equity challenges, as we continue to see a, a higher prevalence of, of gun violence and poverty and things related on the social front that there is this concern that the city is going to start getting hollowed out. Um, there's, you know, McDonald's CEO went on, on record recently around some of the, the concerns he has about operating in the city of Chicago. We know Caterpillar is moving some of their operations. Um, there's been others who have sent certain signals, both in the context of, of organizations that might be inclined to leave or organizations who might be looking to Chicago as a new home, what are you hearing from businesses and what they really need to see out of the city? And, and like, what are the conditions that really drive a vibrant, growing business community that, that can create ever-increasing numbers of those opportunities and under the initiatives you described? So I work with companies who say we want to be part of a solution. We want to be part of the opportunity that Chicago is. We want to be part of creating a prosperous region. So I am optimistic every day because I'm working with companies who want to create the region that I think many of us want to describe. It's important to recognize that as critical as the role of the corporate community is, companies cannot do that on their own. The public sector has a critical role to play. 
philanthropy and the nonprofit sector have critical roles to play. What I'm focused on, what we're focused on the corporate coalition is to make sure the corporate community is playing its role. And companies, leaders are worried, but they're also investing in Chicago. The fact they're doing this work says they see Chicago as their home. They see they care about Chicago. So the issues we're working with are not issues that came up yesterday. They're challenges that have been around for a while and there are opportunities that are out there for us to capture. I think we have to have a, an effective public sector at the local, state, and national level, and that takes a lot of work. We have to work on that. We have to support the nonprofits who are doing the hard work and have been doing a lot of this work for a year in, year out, decade in, decade out. I think the exciting thing is looking at companies saying, what can we do beyond what we've done before in a different way than what we've done before? Beyond, let's just do a little more than what we've done before. Let's do something different. That, to me, is what gives me optimism and makes me excited about where we can get to. I agree with everything you said. How are you going about the coordination with nonprofits, philanthropy, the city and state, right? Like, there are an almost debilitating number of things going on across the city, across the state. Some of them is just kind of old playbook stuff that really isn't going to make a long-term difference. Some of it is amazing, but really not well-documented or well-known to most folks. How do you think about the distinction between the kinds of things that businesses are uniquely capable of doing in the context of their hiring, their procurement, business unusual types of decisions versus those areas where the business community can give a real boost to substantive policy reforms or substantive philanthropic efforts if they were, were able to play in the right way at the right time. So all of those are important, for sure. Um, people often come and say, what can I do? I, I want to make a difference in the world. And we need people who are willing to read to kids at night. We need people who want to go to the federal government and change policy on a massive scale. And we need everything in the middle. So all the things you mentioned are important. For the coalition itself, we committed at the beginning that we would be focused on how can companies change and focused on those initiatives on the doing piece. We've expanded recently to talk more and be more public because we think it's important to inspire more companies to do that. But we're focused primarily on what we can do. Then the measure is what can we do at scale? Because there are so many things out there, as you said, that are happening and what is the scale we need to change in terms of hiring? We need to change hiring in traditionally disinvested communities by the tens of thousands. Those are the number of people who don't have jobs. So what can we do by the tens of thousands? We think fair chance is something we do by the tens of thousands. So it's a matter of scale where we can, as the business community, make decisions to approach that scale. Almost no example is going to be successful without companies working directly with community leaders and without public sector playing its role. So for instance, in the fair chance world, many companies start with, gee, I'd love to, but I'm regulated. I can't. Well, it turns out that A, most companies are regulated. If you are an airline, you're not only regulated, regulated by the FAA, you're regulated by the United States Postal Service. That's a lot of regulations about who can touch your planes and touch the things on your planes. But there are things that can be done to define certain jobs, certain records where you can hire people. So there's a lot of work that companies can do. JP Morgan Chase has been very public to their credit about 
their look at hiring people with records. And last year, they hired 4,000 people into entry-level positions, almost 10% of the entry-level positions were people with records. They're highly regulated as well, but they did the hard work of saying, what jobs, what records can we hire and can we provide career paths to? In doing that work, those companies and the companies we're working with are identifying many areas where the public sector can do its work better. And so we see our role as, as, and we talk regularly with our local city colleagues, as well as our state colleagues about, hey, this set of companies are finding these regulations problematic and providing that information to the public sector. On the community investment side, a lot of what we've done is to try to help private capital follow where the public sector has begun making investment. Because again, the sector can't do it on its own. We need to work with one another, but we're looking for the places where the business community can and make decisions by itself address those problems at scale. So the the day we're recording this, uh, February 28th, happens to be a a little political event going on in our city today. Um, I won't put you on the spot by asking your opinion or or who who you voted for, thinking about voting for. Um, but let's say, Brian, you were on the ballot. Like you've, you've been in the city a long time. You, you have actually, given the, the work you've done prior to the corporate coalition, you've kind of seen every different kind of socioeconomic nook and cranny of the city for at least a couple of decades. And so there's, there's a lot of wisdom, I think, in, in what you're bringing to the work you're doing right now. If you were on the ballot and you won the election today without a runoff because everybody just overwhelmingly loves you, what, what are the first three things you think you would do as mayor that would kind of be inclusive of the business community, either policies that might promote their ability to thrive or, or connect, you know, structurally connect them to the communities that we all collectively serve and care about? Like, based on all your years of experience here, what would you do? Where would your pen go? So I can honestly say I have given that hypothetical if I were mayor. <laughs> Zero thought. I love that. And I'd, I'd love to just push that one step further. I, I love the ideas of top-down power centers, right? And bottom-up being members of a community and that that historical uh, power asymmetry that's existed between those parties. I think part of that listening, right? Listening ought to be a vehicle uh, to forge and foster connection, mutual understanding. Listening is a skill. It is an active. It is an active verb. It should be an active verb. But we, in the collective, we we are not great listeners. Power centers are not great listeners because they hold power. Um, so they might check the boxes that they feel they need to check. But when it comes to digging in and being empathic, making that connection. And then some, you know, in some cases, maybe having a business or economic catalyst to take action or an emotional catalyst to take action. Again, back in 2019, the calls we were getting were not born out of, nobody was thinking about ROI, brand equity, anything else. There was this emotional, like just sense of social responsibility. I have to do something. My city is bleeding and I'm living this great life and something is not right about that dichotomy. I, I think historically... As a society, we've not we've not 
built the right bridge through that activity of listening and connecting that top down, bottom up in the way you described. I think that's right. And I think there are several things to unpack in there. One is I think the responsibility is somewhat asymmetric. That is, those with the power and influence have a higher responsibility to take an extra moment, assume good intentions, work to be empathetic, just because of how I'll say we got there and the effect that our decisions can have versus those on the other side of the table. You remind me, as you put that, my rabbi once said his job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Many of us are very comfortable. Yeah. It's a lot easier to hang out where you live than it is to spend time in places that feel like they are thousands of miles away. To recognize these are our neighbors, that isn't always comfortable. In fact, often it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it it absolutely is. We're, I mean, we're socially wired. I hate the term tribalism, but but it has a bit of a truism. We are wired to to operate and, and find comfort and solace in the social constructs that either life has presented to us or that we create for ourselves. And to get out of those social constructs is not comfortable. It is not safe. It's not fun. Yeah. The geographic barriers that we've set up for ourselves, the history of Chicago and the way it's been developed is reflective of that. And so how do we break out of the epicenter as being the power source and how do we extend it out so that it's more of a web and that that we can change the outcomes of the socioeconomic and the health that expand out to our far reaches? Because as we know, you travel from downtown, south or west, your life expectancy and the health and socioeconomic change happens. So how do we effectively also create opportunity that's more accessible? Because I think the other challenge is we can commute from our far reaches downtown because we have that capability through transit and through other other means. But what are we doing to either break down the the opportunity through where someone works and what that looks like for them, because there are multiple factors to that. So it's giving them the opportunity is one thing, but like getting to that opportunity is a whole other set of rules and regulations that we haven't, we, we, I think we are starting to transform and think about differently. I think that COVID 100% disrupted and changed the way that all of us work. And now we're starting to realize like, from a point of privilege, some of us were able to just flip the switch and work in a bedroom or an office at home, but that wasn't the case for everyone. And how do we make that more possible as we move forward? What are some of the groups from Corporate Coalition thinking about as they think about those access points for the second chance hiring, but also for their frontline workers and other people that have struggled the last couple of years? There's so much in there, Megan. Let me just start with, you're absolutely right that One of the things that distinguishes Chicago is the way we have physically built this city to segregate different groups from one another. So what began as racial segregation has evolved into racial and economic segregation. And that is a very, very good recipe for destroying lives where those things overlap in a negative way. And 
so yes, we have higher barriers in Chicago because of the way we built the city physically. The second is that it takes intent. Like it has to start with intent. How are we going to break down some of those barriers? And in some cases, those are physical barriers because yes, it is easy to get on the metro and go downtown and go back to the North Shore. It's a lot easier to do that than to try to go from the South Side to get out to a job at O'Hare. Some of the corporate coalition members have tried some really innovative strategies. Discover Financial built a call center in Chatham. Now, Discover did not need a call center, but what their CEO said was, how are we going to play a role beyond writing a check, which we all can do and need to do, but that we uniquely can do? And what we can do is we can provide good jobs to people in a community where the physical access to good jobs is difficult. And so what's fascinating about this story is not just that the CEO decided this, but then began to discover, no pun intended, the internal processes that pushed against making that decision. So HR said, oh, we're going to open a call center. That's great. Let's go where there are great schools because we can attract great employees. And the CEO said, hold on, that's probably not going to bring us to the disinvested community that we want to serve. And the same thing for the real estate group and all the different groups. Fast forward to today, and the call center in Chatham is one of the highest performing call centers in the network. Retention there, according to the CEO, is 40% higher than other call centers. These are really good jobs that people can work and then go see their kids play softball or baseball or whatever they're playing and have a higher quality of life than if they had to take two buses and a train. So in some cases, it's about putting the jobs where people are. In other cases, it's taking the job that may be somewhere else and making it accessible to a person because you get rid of the four-year degree requirement, which was never really a requirement. You just added it because it was convenient when there were more people than there were jobs. I think your focus on frontline employees and COVID is a really interesting one. You're right. Many of us just said, well, I'd like to be downtown and see all my friends, but I'll just do my work from home for two or three or six or 12 months. As we're moving back to the office. Four years. Four years. <laughs> as we move back to the office, I think it becomes really important for companies to explicitly think. And I think this is where intention comes, it becomes important. This is where talking about business unusual and being intentional about crossing barriers becomes important. Now, whom are we going to require to come in full time and who benefits most from having flexibility? Is it the assistant who, if she, often she, needs to care for a sick child, has to take a full day off of work? Or can that person have the flexibility to work from home and only have to take an hour off? The difference in that person's life for taking an hour off versus a day off is probably much bigger than the difference in my life. And so I think it's be very important as we figure out this hybrid world. It's a, to me, it's a set of opportunities to either re-exclude, re-segregate, re-stratify, re or maybe it's an opportunity to say, how can we be more inclusive? How can we de-stratify in some cases? But it's going to take intention. Brian, where do you think we're going on, on that front, based on what you hear from your members, your own observations of the business community? Right? We know prior to, to COVID, I mean, the city was, I mean, we 94, 95% commercial space occupancy, restaurants were full, and retail shopping spaces were full. 
we've we've obviously started to see a return of some of that, but most every client I have, colleague I have, kind of has a little bit of an edict right now where they, the kind of baseline is work from home, maybe come in a couple days a week, but that staggered, like some of that Monday through Friday, eight to six beating heart of this city is still missing. And, and so much of the space is still kind of vacant. And I genuinely don't know where this is. Like I'm holding off on, on leasing decisions because I don't know where this is going. And I don't exactly know what to be planning for for the future. Play this out five, six, seven years. Do you think there is some version of going back to the way things were in 2019? Or, or, is, or are we starting to really cast the dice, so to speak, in, in what we're seeing? And this is our proverbial new normal. I hate that term now. So at least two thoughts. The first is I have to bring up Yogi Berra and his famous quote. You know what I'm going to say, which is that predictions are very difficult, especially those involving the future. Yeah, I'll um, give you another one. Bill, Bill Frist, I was at an event once and he said, for those that um, spend their life looking into a crystal ball, be prepared to eat crushed glass. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, where is the West Loop today versus where it was 15 years ago? I mean, Great so point. that world is what always the signals changing. you're seeing, I, trend lines. I, so I think that people have rediscovered how wonderful it is to be with other human beings. We have our corporate coalition meetings. We now always have a reception afterwards. And people are almost giddy to be with <laughs> colleagues and have the chance to talk with one another face to face. And I think that's a wonderful thing because I think originally there was a lot of concern in the business community about the loss of mentorship for young employees and the loss of innovation, having those happenstance. And that's all, I think that's all correct. I think the bigger impact is the, the human connections that people look for in work. And the loss of that means that most companies are not going fully remote. Some will, but I think those that find a way to nurture the human connections between employees are going to be more successful. And to me, that's an opportunity because that says the company's going to be thinking about how am I going to relate to my employees as humans, not as widgets or, or as econs as, as people have become in economic theory. And that to me opens up lots of possibilities. Okay, what do my employee, they don't all need the same thing. What does my employee who lives in Englewood need versus my employee who lives in Walnut need? And I think if it spurs companies to think more about how they support and nurture productivity, employee wellness, then there's opportunity there to be more inclusive, to be more productive, to have a much more exciting and driving workforce. No, I, I think you nailed it. And I, I think, yeah, there's all the colloquial reasons why we kind of know or assume it's good for people to be together to work, why that's efficient and, and it's good you know, socioeconomically. I can think of, you know, the last two or three convenings I've been to and I, I see somebody that I've not seen physically for two or three years. I may have not talked to them for a couple of years and we're not shaking hands or like giving a fist bump, like we're full on hugging. And like they go to, you know, do a three second hug, they go to break away and I just squeeze a little tighter, right? I, I'm not awkward linger <laughs> for next year too, because I'm taking it in. Like we are, as human beings, it's it's touch, it's it's connection. You, you know, Zoom has been, Zoom, Slack, you know, all these telecommunication tools and, and modalities we've been able to use over the last two or three years. Like, thank God for those. Our economy would have just ground to a halt. Um and they've been wonderful at letting us still get our work done. But I think we are all still 
coming to realize for ourselves how important it is to jump in the car, to drive 30 minutes and, and sit even in a room like this and just have a conversation in person instead of doing it on Zoom. Maybe is there a way if we get out of the Monday through Friday, get on the train and go downtown, if people with the influence and the power are rethinking their physical lives, maybe there's a way to go to West Garfield Park instead of downtown one day a week. That would be interesting. Hell yes. And, and this, I mean, look, if there was ever an opportunity to be laying the groundwork for those kinds of things, this is it. Every one of us from a 20-person business to large multinational corporation should be thinking about those things. I think that COVID expedited a culture shift that I think was coming regardless about what work culture looks like, because I think there was already this shift towards uh, a culture of wellness and and being mindful about, I mean, it's some of the work that you all are doing with the Resiliency Network and thinking about people and what they're bringing in the door to the workplace. And how do we unpack that and be aware of what those things are? But I think it's now it's like, it, whether it's virtual or in person and, and all of those things is is a whole other set of rules. But I think it's how are we approaching the work that we're doing and who we're doing it with? And it's more about the people as well and what those interactions look like and how we are interfacing with them and helping them do their best work that they're proud of and that they are sustainable jobs that they want to be at and they're not going to quit tomorrow because they have not only good benefits that provide that wellness piece, but a culture that's nurturing their, their opportunities as well. One of the things I think is interesting is we started working on the Chicago Resiliency Network again before COVID, before George Floyd's murder. And the notion was a number of companies were purposely hiring people from communities that are, are Iraq with gun violence. And then they found that they were firing those employees at roughly the same rate. And they realized that employees are coming to work with trauma in their lives just by dint of where they live. And they didn't have the tools, the companies didn't have the tools to help these employees be successful. Call the employee assistance hotline in New York was not a good answer. Right. It wasn't until talking about mental health in the workplace was something that everyone was talking about. Racially, this was a roughly black problem and not a white problem. And then when, when it became everyone's problem, people were willing to talk about it. That, I think, is a good thing, but it makes one wonder, what are the other things that aren't in our community, but as in someone else's community, that we're not, that, what are the other things that we're not dealing with because they're not in my community? Yeah. And that goes back to listening. Yeah. Good point. Creating platforms, um, properties that allow us to listen. Brian, play out the corporate coalition over the next five years. If you had to write kind of a headline goal for what you, you kind of hope the, the work you and your colleagues have achieved and we'll count ourselves as a, as a colleague and a co-conspirator, what, what does that look like? Well, I'm not sure I'd put quite the timeline on it. Okay. But success is there is no corporate coalition because Beautiful. the culture of doing business in Chicago the shared beliefs and the behavioral norms are such that we don't need a corporate coalition. Every CEO knows that the prosperity of the entire region is both her or his responsibility 
and is her or his ability to contribute to. And therefore, business decisions are made in a way that says, how are we bringing more people to the economy? How are we growing the region in a way that is equitable? And then you don't need a coalition. It's just the way we do business. So if, if I were to frame that, your, your primary objective is how do we create a sustained change in the ethos of business leaders in this city to, to invest, to be inclusive, um, to listen and bring their resources to bear and uh, lifting communities and individuals up while still achieving the business outcomes and results we aspire to achieve. How do we make business unusual, usual business? We are a member. We are one of your 36 member companies. And, and thrilled and grateful. <laughs> we appreciate that. We are also very, very, we fully understand that we are not AT&T, JP Morgan Chase, right? We're small business. Somebody listening to this that has a 20-person business, 50-person business, 100-person business, and they're thinking about like, oh, my God, well, I can't throw the weight around of JP Morgan or Discover, open call centers. Like, I know why we participate. What would you say to the, you know, to the owners of 80% of businesses out there that are under 100 employees? Why should they be involved? First of all, no one can do everything. Not even ATT, JP Morgan, go down the list. But everyone needs to do something, something that's commensurate with both the scale of the problem, the scale of the opportunity, and the scale of your organization. So you're a 100-person organization. How many people do you hire from the south and west sides? How many people do you hire with a criminal record? Where do you invest your assets? Tapping into that collective impact that if every one of us are doing... 10% of our things a little differently. The collective impact is astronomical. That, that if everyone did that 10% differently, then we would blow away the size of the, of the yeah. challenge. And you can always call me and I'll be happy to give you some ideas on some specific I was going to say, I, as an active participant, I think that the value in the coalition is the learning opportunity that comes with that. So I think, and I will recommend that anybody at any size business should consider this as an opportunity to do the right thing. It is about our community. And I think what you said earlier in the episode is so critical that Chicago is such a civically minded city. So how do we bring that to what we do? The HC3 Podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time. <laughs>